You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, by quoting something that I learned from Rav Ronan Neuwirth's um, book. Those who haven't um, seen it, I think I have it here. Right, it's called um, The Narrow Halachic Bridge. Um, there was a $4 sale on Amazon. I don't know if there is anymore. Um, Neuwirth actually sent me a copy of the book uh, many months ago, and I think I read it and didn't fully appreciate it. Um, and I'm reading it again now and appreciating it a lot more. Uh, I thought it was a very good book. But um, but now I am. Uh, but it's a much better book actually. The next time through, so I wanted to start with a source that he quotes in his um, chapter, which is admirably, a really really admirably honest and um, addresses really important issues. Chapter five, which is the requirement to obey poskim, right? Which has a subtitle called "Is one obligated to blindly obey the rabbis?" Um, so he starts off by quoting the sources that you probably all know. Uh, right, that there's a, a Sifri that Rashi quotes, sifri, that, right, that Rashi quotes, um, that says that, uh, even if the rabbis tell you that left is right and right is left, that you have to follow them, that this is against both the, uh, right, that although Rashi says this, both the Bavli and the Yushalmi seem to take the position that you should not follow rabbis when you know that they're wrong. Uh, the issue, of course, is how do you know uh, when they're wrong? But he quoted uh, the medieval uh, commentary, Minchat Yuda. Uh, has a really interesting solution. So he says, "Velo tasur yaminu small." Pirish Rashi. So Rashi says, "Afilu omer lachal yaminu shu small va small shu yamin." Even if they tell you that right is left and left is right, uh, and all the right, all the more so. Of course, you have to follow them. Right? Don't stray left to right if they tell you that right is right and left is left. And on this, Mincha Yuda, uh, right? Again, it's one of the Baliatosfos quoted in the um, quoted in the in the collections of Tosfos. Says oh, the, the Mincha Yuda commentary is on alatorah.org now. Mikhail says, with Tema, right? Tema, this is astonishing. He spells it with an Aleph. Usually we spell the astonishing one with a Hey, but that's what it means here. Why do we, do we really listen to a sage who tells us that something which is Tamei is Tahor and something which is forbidden and permitted? How could that be? Ella, he says, It has to be that the real solution here is we're talking about big decrees that seem to be reversing the Torah. Al yamin shu small. What does it mean when you say, say your right is left? For example, uh, when they tell you that you can't blow shofar on Shabbat, um, right? Which is a re- really, uh, really um, the way the Bavli emerges it, right? In the Yushalmi, that's a, it's a it's a biblical thing, but in the Bavli, it's a rabbinic decree that even though there's a mitzvah in the Torah to blow shofar even on Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah, but um, but we're not allowed to. Vachain uh, Harban, there are lots of other decrees um, like that, that where where the rabbis tell you not to perform a Torah mitzvah because of their decrees. So that sounds like they're telling you that right is left. We have to follow them anyway. Well, small shimin, kigon shniot l'arayot vachain Harban. Already has other 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 decrees uh, in terms of. I'm not sure truthfully exactly what he means in that um, in that context. I guess that's is that forbidding things that seem. Um, that seem obviously. No, I should have looked it up, but I did not. I, I could speculate, but I'm not quite sure as to um, why extending the boundaries of relationship is left. That is, um, is left. That is right. My fault. Okay, but his but his basic principle is it has to be rabbinic decrees that uh, reverse Torah law. Otherwise, if the rabbis really get it wrong, you can't follow them. Uh, you can't follow them at all. 
Okay, I also don't know what the apparent acronym at the end is, and if anybody can figure that out, I would love to uh, to know. Uh, I end all of you at all, I'm not sure what it means. I'm not even sure if it's the end of the previous sentence or if it's a signature. Um, okay, confessing um, both error and ignorance is a good way to introduce this shear um, because that's what we're we're going to be talking about uh, on the whole. Um, but was also quoted uh, later work the Knesset uh, Gedola on the tour, um, who says explicitly that you're not allowed to follow uh, sages who are wrong. And he has a really interesting line. He says, I have to write that it's really clear that if you know that the rabbi is wrong, you're not allowed to follow them. Because I know many people who are really, they know who God is. They know their, their creator. And they know who God is, and they are intending to rebel against him. How do they do that? And the way they rebel against God is by relying on halachic rulings from sages that they know are wrong. Even though they know that the sage definitely uh, was wrong, that's a fascinating claim. Okay, I don't want to in any way pretend that these are norm. You know, these are the standard positions. Uh, right? Most people, uh, you know, their discussion begins and ends with uh, with the Rashi and quoting the Sifri that you have to follow the rabbis even if they tell you right is left and left is right, um, and then modify that as opposed to starting from the opposite position even though I know that seems to be the position of the Babli and the Yushalmi, but uh, Rabbi Neuwirth goes through all the standard sources and more, right? So here you have two, two fun sources um, that, I, you know, I, that uh, I was not aware of uh, prior to reading his book, and I'm very grateful to him for it. Um, so I guess I have confessed error uh, in that I didn't know what Asmol Shimin meant here, and ignorance about the uh, the um, acronym I end, maybe I indulge you a bit. Aleph, maybe that's a uh, maybe that's an error, and uh, also that there were things I didn't know. I guess that was ignorance before uh, Rabbi Neuer, before reading Rabbi Neuer's book. So that's our topic for uh, introduction to trying to figure out uh, what goes on in this week's parsha in the dialogue between Moshe and Aaron about uh, apparently whether one, whether a chatat sacrifice should have been burnt and eaten. In which, as we'll see, it seems that Moshe Rabbeinu got the halacha wrong, and I want to just try and play out how that, uh, right, what was his mistake, um, and how did, right, what really was the 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 the, um, the subtext of the dialogue between Moshe and Aaron? Where did Mar where did Aaron go from there, and why? Um, if Moshe Rabbeinu really issued a wrong hurrah, um, so what is what is Aaron's relationship to Moshe's authority um, going forward? And that question can be raised, right? What happens if your post makes a mistake, um, right? Which, you know, post are human beings on the whole. And, um, you know, and eventually most of them will make uh, mistakes, some of them more often than others. Um, okay, so here's, we're going to go through the, the, the narrative of the, um, of the, of the I guess before I should stop and say if there are any questions on the first section. Yeah, right, clap right a question. Uh, yes, go. Marty. Uh, so what's a practical example or, or practical meaning of someone deliberately following sage that you know is wrong? Because and from the standpoint of if I'm following a sage, then I presumably I you know his knowledge, you know, someone who's I expect his knowledge is greater than mine and someone um, you know, if, if, if I'm not being insincere, just trying to find, you know, trying to be the hockeys and finding somebody who's, who's 
you know, uh, not very qualified and, and deliberately following him just because he has a title. But if I'm if I'm really following a sage, yeah, what's what's the situation where I would know that he's wrong? Right. So that is a great question. That is a great question, right? Yeah, you know, that we could we could argue that uh, anybody who knows that someone else is wrong is so arrogant by definition they can't possibly be right. Um, you could talk about you know the the easiest kind of case is where is where there's a, pra a practical error where you know somebody is a, you know is a fine sage but utterly unaware of of certain scientific uh, realities. That's sort of the easy case. Um, I don't think that's really what the um, I don't think that's really what the uh, what the, the commentators here are talking about. They're probably they're probably more talking about cases where you know that some you know it's just obvious to you that somebody got a, a bee in their bonnet and they have an idiosyncratic position you know that everybody rejects and it can't possibly be true but it really appeals to you uh right it lets you do something that you right that you other that you, that you otherwise uh you know that you know is wrong it can't possibly be true but you know there's this one person who has this totally idiosyncratic position the problem you know for me and i imagine for you also is that sometimes people with wildly idiosyncratic positions are right uh, you know, so how do you know? I, I think that's a great question. I think that's why I don't uh, I don't celebrate this response um, because every one of us at some point has to rely on you know, has to rely on others. And part of what I want to talk about in the share is what happens if you know that somebody has made a mistake. So how do we right, to try to find a way to navigate where, on the one hand, you still have responsibility. So you know, in many fields, you might know that. Um, there's somebody they're much more qualified in the field than you are, and yet, even though they're qualified in the field, that position of theirs is just nuts. I think that's what we're looking for, right? I think that's the uh, right. We're looking. It's just you know, you, whatever field it is, psychology, carpentry. I don't know. You know, somebody tells you something, and you just know that's just you know that's just the kind of position that um, you know that where everything where you know. I think this. Let's say for example. You know, a contemporary example that was really interesting. Um, you know that there was a right that there was a, a, a very great Talmud Chacham um, in Philadelphia who opposed uh, to a certain extent at least vaccination. Um, and what was really interesting was Rizkik Adlerstein of um, who is normally a very very strong advocate of the authority of particular rabbinic leaders wrote a, uh, what I thought was a brave column um, in which he said, but this position of my Rebbe the Gadol Hador is just wrong. Um, and that was really interesting to me, right? That was really interesting. Uh, you know, trying, even people who are the strongest advocates of generally blind obedience. They just have their lines and there's some things that you just know that you're wrong. And I, again, I, you know how that, how you, you can never be 100% sure I think that the um, I think the underlying point of this position is that there shouldn't be anybody whom you net right who you just can't ever have that feeling about, um, and you have to know that sometimes you'll be wrong, right? And they'll be right, but there still has to, you have to have enough independent judgment that there's something that just can't be right. And there's something that just can't be right. Um, I asked this in conversion um, in conversion meetings about moral questions. Um, where, where um, you know, the one hand, right, you know, conversion candidates are extraordinarily vulnerable. And what you tell them generally is if you have a question, what you have to do is go ask your rabbi. 
Um, but rabbis change over time. I forget those assume that that you know that you're a baiting which makes sure that the only people you accept for sponsorship are people who currently have um, who currently have you know positions that all fall within the pale. But you know, it could be that you're setting somebody up for a relationship and ten years later that same Bozik will have taken a position on an issue that never occurred to you to ask. Maybe it's vaccination, maybe it's something else. And so you have to, right? So for me, like one of the things we really look for is that a conversion candidate still has to have a, the capacity to exercise independent judgment. So I think that's the only way, you know, I, there's no epistemological certainty. Um, you know, your certainty that somebody is wrong, somebody else can be just as certain that you're wrong about that, the other person can be. And so sometimes you're each obligated to follow um, your own best judgment. I think, you know, and I think that Again, our newest book is, you know, is valuableness, right? Setting it up that both of these are values. You know, deference to, to scholarship, you know, and the greater the gap, the greater the deference in halacha is certainly a very, very important value, aside from certain kinds of um, you know, official relationships in terms of who has communal authority and things like that. Um, but it can never get to the point. I think that's the, it can never get to the point where you simply can't have judgment because people, um, people change, uh, people change. Uh, people have health conditions that affect their judgment, and you may not know about those health conditions until much later. Um, I guess that's a very long answer. I hope that was. Okay. Close. No, thank you. Thank you. It's good. Seth, so, you want to say something? Oh, I guess not. Okay. Good. Thank you. That was the risk of opening with that. With that, but let's try. We'll try and get enough that about the parsha uh, as well. And you'll see how I think how this relates to everything. So I want to talk about the. Um, I want to talk about the inauguration, right? The investiture of Aaron and his sons. And the first thing I have to note is that if you want to set up a narrative, what we call the Shivat Yumei Amiluim, right? The seven days of investiture plus what happens on the eighth day. So it starts towards the, uh, the towards the end of Shmoet, right? In Parshat Tzav, and then it goes on hiatus until uh, Parshat Tzav. It, it takes up the end of Parshat Tzav and the beginning of Parshat Shmini, and then it, we leave it again for the rest of Shmini and Tazriya and Sora, and we come back to it in um, in Achrimot. Um, we're not going to get to Achrimot very much today, but let's just be aware that right? we're we're telling a story that appears in it appears in different in, in, in scattered places, and as we'll see, there's no guarantee, as always in the Torah, that those scattered places are in order that they don't repeat, they don't that they aren't they could be running simultaneously on you know, you know, split screen, uh, they could right, they could be sequential. They could be a chronological. We don't know. So I'll try my best to put together um, at least a, a way which you can have an awareness of what the issues are. Um, so in short Perk we read that Hashem tells um, tells Moshe, right? If you're looking at the screen, right? So I indent, I indent the things that are that are said by some by X to Y. So God says to Moshe, now you should take Aaron and his sons, Israel to make him Kohanim, and right, that's Aaron and his sons, Nadava Vihu Elazari Tamar. Okay, then skipping a little bit, it says these are the things that you should do in order to invest them. And the things we learn about is you have to sacrifice one par and two uh, and two alim plus a bunch of um, of of matzot, um, which are presumably a mincha a mincha offer, right? So we know that there's part of the investiture is the korban, and the right and in that sacrifice involves one right one ox to uh, Two right, two rams and um, and some and some vegetables, right? Some grains. Okay, then it gives you instructions, right? So from 
It tells you right? so we're going to start having and try to figure out what, but there were two of them. Uh, you take these various materials out of them. The things that matter to us is you take the shuk hayamin, you take the right, the right, uh, the right leg, the right thigh, whatever you want to call it, um, because this is the el miluim, whatever that means. Okay, and one of the one of the matzot, fine. And what do you do with them? You take the, you put them all on kape aron del kape banav. You put this, the, the you put this other stuff and the shuk hayamin and the matzah on Aaron and his son's palms, and you wave them. Okay, and then you right, and then you burn them. And then you take something else called the chazeh, right, the chest, whatever that is, right, from the same El and you wave that. Right? So our first set of instructions end with taking a shok and a chazeh and waving them, but apparently waving them separately. Right? The, the, the shok gets waved uh, in this first group over here in Pasuk Chavdalad, and the um, and the Chazeg gets waved now in Pasuk um, in Pasuk Chavvav. Okay, fine. There we right. Everything everything is all good as we get to uh, right. Then then we discover in Pasuk Lamed Aleph that the same Elamiluim you have to take and you have to cook it, and then Aaron and his sons will eat it. Okay, so we know three things about the the this Elamiluim now. It's got a shok that you wave. It's got a chazer that you wave, but apparently you don't wave them together. And then, and then, um, right? This is God, right? This is God talking to uh, to Moshe, and what right, He says, "You, right? It seems like you should take the elamilim because Moshe, right? All the way through, Moshe performs. Right? Moshe is the is the high priest until it's passed off to Aaron on the eighth day. So it sounds like an instruction to Moshe: take the ayel and cook it, and then Aaron and his sons will eat it. Okay, that's the end. Now we're out of Shemot. Okay, and now in now we're in Parshat Sabim Vayikra, and Hashem says to Moshe again, "Take Aaron and his sons." And this seems to be the exact same thing as he was told to Tzave. So Rabbanel comments, right, Really, we have is that God told Moshe in advance there what you were supposed to do with um, with Aaron, and now it actually now it actually happens. Right, leaving aside of what, how much of a gap there is between them when the Egel Azav happens, things like that. Okay, now Moshe does Asher Tzivah Hashem Moshe does what God tells him to do. Uh, right? God also told him to bring the community together so the people come. And then Moshe talks to the people and he says, this is what God commanded. So we're pretty clear it's all, it's all what God says. And then Moshe, right, we skipped a lot of Sukkim. Moshe comes to Aaron and his sons and he tells them, cook the meat. And eat it right and eat it. Right? And he has this very peculiar grammatical form, Kashir Sivesi Limor, as I which could mean as I commanded or could be as I was was commanded. It's sort of halfway between Siviti and Suveti. Uh, I think that the consensus is that it means as I was commanded. Um, but it's really interesting. He says he says, cook the meat. Now we saw that the cook the meat instruction was addressed to him, but he tells Aaron, cook the meat. He says, as I was commanded, Aaron and his sons will eat it. Hang on a sec. Okay, good. But why did you tell them to cook it? God told you to cook it. And you're not even pretending otherwise. You say, as I was commanded, Aaron and his sons will eat it. You didn't say anything about cooking it. Okay. So there's a slight divergence, it seems, from the instructions. Okay. Then Moshe tells them, don't leave the, the entrance to Olamoid for seven days. Uh, all right, the seven days of messengers. And then we have a really just about incomprehensible passage. The way that he did on that day, that's what God had commanded. A really, really odd 
really odd uh, investiture. But again, we're saying very much that uh, this is what um, that everywhere emphasizing what God is uh, is commanded. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Deborah says the sound quality is iffy, um, but I can't get it to work without earbuds right now. I'm sorry. So I hope that, I hope that it's bearable. Um, okay. The um, Okay, so now, right, so, right, so Moshe, right, so Moshe, Moshe tells, right, Moshe shifts his, right, now he says, okay, he, he emphasizes what God wanted. Now he says, right, again, right, sit in the Olam await seven days. So this is a little confusing, right, because in Pasuk Lamed Gimel, Moshe said, don't leave the entrance Olam await for seven days, just like God commanded. And then he says, again, don't leave the Olam await seven days. You just said that. Now you just said that, so why, why repeat it just two second later? Um, and it says something new, and that way you will guard the Mishmeret of God and you won't die. Well, right, where you know, why are we all of a sudden mentioning death? What is the Mishmeret Hashem? So, you know, we have later ideas, right? That it's a vigil and right, they're keeping they're keeping vigil, and when you keep vigil, you stay all night at the temple. But those are mostly derived from here as opposed to um, things that derive directly from you know, they're, they're back formed on it. So I don't know exactly what that means, and I'm very puzzled by it occurring again, two psukim apart. And now Moshe says, suveti. So that's what I was commanded. So that's a very odd thing. We just said, as God commanded you, so why does he make it personal and say, so I was commanded? It should be, right, that's what you were commanded. And then Aaron and his sons do something peculiar, right? What do they do? They do every, everything which God commanded, the Yad Moshe. Why not just say they did everything that Hashem commanded? Well, you have to add in that God commanded by a Moshe, right? So we have two, two lines, right? Three things which are really odd here, right? Kasher, Siveti Lemur, where Moshe says, as I was commanded, but that seems to fudge the question of cooking. We have a sort of incomprehensible Pasuk saying that this is what God commanded, and then it focuses on Moshe again, right? As I was commanded, and as God commanded through Moshe, right? Really very peculiar. And then what happens is that they make it through the seven days, they don't die. And then, of course, the Davin um, rush in, and they um, and they die on the eighth day, so it doesn't come true. Vilot uh, the right? They right? They keep they don't leave for seven days and seven nights, and they don't die. But somebody dies immediately afterwards, and then Moshe says something which has puzzled us for you know for thousands of years. That's what God said. Right, the Samosha says to Aaron, that's what God said would happen. Where? God didn't say anything of a sort. And Aaron is silent. Okay, so enormous amounts of, of ink spilled trying to explain what the meaning of Aaron's silence, why Aaron is silent. I want to put two commentaries in, um, in the play here. They're both in a work called Siftek Kohen, which is by a, a student of Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch of Mordechai Kohen. So in 16th century, Tzvat, so he brings a commentary of his own, and then he brings a Tanhuma, and I think they're both uh, startling. Here's what he says on his own. It should have said, right, uh, because Moshe was commanded in Parshat Moshe. So he thinks it means, right, means as I, Moshe, commanded, not as I was commanded. And he wants to know, what, how could that be? God commands, not Moshe. Elder says, why does it say more? So we have to look 
Um, right? So we're talking about this pasuk, right? So Moshe says to Aaron, cook the meat, kasher, siveti, which he mean, thinks means, right, as I commanded, um, right, lemor. So what is, what is, I commanded lemor, right? If he's, if he's on his own and he's not quoting God, so what's lemor? And then again, we pointed out the issue about the cooking and the eating. So what does he do with this? He says, Ella, Actually, God commanded Moshe to cook the meat. According to the Pasuk we saw in Parshat Tisavra. And now what he's saying to them is, Even though God commanded me that I should cook the meat, really all God cared about, God only cares that, that, right, that you eat it, he doesn't really care who cooks it. God doesn't care who cooks it. Lemor Aron Ravanav Yochlu, right? So he, when he says when Moshe says Lemor, he doesn't mean quote. He means the opposite of quote. He means right as I was commanded, and what God meant to say when He commanded me, even though He said cook the meat, what He meant to say was, right? Aaron and his sons will Aaron and his sons will eat it, and I don't really care who cooks it. Okay, and he says if you go on in Parsha Tetzave, it. Um, it goes on and says several times, um, talking about eating, and never talks about cooking again. From here, Moshe knew. So Moshe figured out that from God's emphasis, that God really only cared about the eating and not the cooking. That's what he means, as I commanded, because it's not what God commanded. This is Moshe's own decision. God actually didn't command one way or the other. So why didn't Moshe just leave it? You know, leave create um, say you know, say to Aaron, do you want to cook it or should I? It's inappropriate for me to cook and you to eat. Because that would apparently that would somehow shame Moshe in front of the public, presumably, I guess, because it would make Moshe seem to be the servant and Aaron the and Aaron the served. So this to me is an astounding thing, right? Moshe Rabbeinu gets a tzivoy from God, and then he says, you know what, well, God meant, God was loved dafka, he didn't really mean that I should do that. And he was so sure of this, he didn't go back to God and say, excuse me, could you explain what you meant? He, right, he said, no, in context, it's entirely clear to me that's what, right, that's really what God meant. And then he goes and he, he's, he's open with Aaron, and he says, look, do this because I'm telling you to, and this is designed to preserve my status, and not because, right, and not because God told you to. And how did we square that with Hashir Tziva Hashem Lasot? So the answer is, well, that's everything before then, right? But, right, at, at, right, but um, I guess, but really, really, right, an astonishing claim, right, that Moshe gets instructions from God, he adds things to them, even though it seems to us like there's a risk that by adding to them, he's actually not fulfilling God's commitment. Okay, that's one uh, that's one thing. The Minchah also quotes a second thing from the Tanchuma, but his citation is uh, sharper than the text we have with Tanchuma. Yep. Is the claim that Moshe um, changed or altered God's intention that it was a problem for Moshe or that Moshe told Aaron he was doing it? There's no problem. There's no problem with Minchah Yudah. He's just telling you what happened, right? The Torah is perfectly transparent. Right, the Torah, why does the Torah say Tzivesi, which he thinks means I commanded? Right, why does, why does it say Moshe commanded? God should be the commander. The answer is this is not something that God commanded. And Moshe tells Aaron, this is not something that God commanded. What God said was, you have to eat it and it has to be cooked. And I'm saying, you better be the one to cook it, not me, because it 
will have unfortunate social consequences if I am seen to be cooking and you're right for your eating. Okay. Rabbi, Rabbi I, think, right, I think that's yes. I said. Um, I, no, I, I'm not understanding it because I mean everything else he did, he got in trouble for. He's told to talk to the rock. He hits the rock. He uh, all that stuff. I mean there are consequences. It doesn't appear there are any consequences mm -hmm. here. Uh, that's true. That's true. It doesn't. Maybe he's right. Maybe well, he he's right. I, I don't know. If he, I don't know if he's right, but it seems like there are no consequences. That yeah, he's maybe he's taking it into his own thought process. Yeah, okay. Who cares who cooks it? You know, it doesn't really matter. It matters that you eat it. And apparently, it seems he's not punished. So maybe that is all that matters. Right. Maybe that is all that mattered. But what it tells you, right, and your, your reading is right, putting it is that we should, you know, if it turns out that Moshe, right, that what Moshe is doing by the hitting the rock, right, is reinterpreting God's words, you know, in, right, in some way. So then it turns out, right, you know, that that's not the first time he's done it. Right, Moshe, right? And maybe, you know, when you get it right, you don't get punished. When you get it wrong, you get punished. But this is not out of character. Right? If this is true, right? I agree. So far, there don't seem to be any consequences. Uh, so far, there don't seem to be any consequences. Rabbi Martin, do you want to say something? I, oh, hi. I, yes. It's Mindy. I have a question, too. I, I, I don't understand quite how this would be a bizayon for, for Moshe. Um, first of all, where, where is Moshe doing this? Is he in the Ohel Moed? I think they're at the entrance. Okay. I think the cooking and the eating both take place at the entrance, so it's in public view. Oh, it is. And were the people yeah. all around watching as he's doing, as he's performing these things? I think so, yes. I think you're right. It, it, in the instructions in in, um, in Sav, it says Moshe should gather the whole people around and they and, and that he gathers them all. So I think everything that takes place is public. I don't know if you know the public stays there seven days and seven nights either. Um, but it seems likely that at least this part of the ritual is uh, is public for right, which I think is, I think from uh, which yeah, I don't know, I'm not sure which day we're on honestly, but I think this part of the ritual, everything is public. Uh -huh. And is is that yeah. a reasonable interpretation to to assume that Moshe would Moshe in, in his infinite humility would would be concerned about his own embarrassment in in this case or just that he's made to look lesser than his brother you know that's a great question also right the mincha yuda I, I think that's what you know it's really getting to the, the from the perspective of the commentator it is not a lack of humility for a leader to be conscious of the effects, right, of the, the effect of their behavior on their public standing, even if the public's this, the public's perception is not is not justified. But you have to be aware of that. You know, if people will react, will if people will lose respect for you, so then you can't behave in a way, even if there's nothing wrong with it. But you know, but you can't behave in a way, and that's something that you always, you know, everybody has to. Um, everyone taking any kind of position has to figure out, right? You know, if you live in a community where they don't respect uh, let's say they don't respect rabbis unless rabbis wear less rabbis wear particular kinds of clothing so then 
there are consequences for not wearing that clothing. Now you might think that this is a decision, decision you have to fight and you have to, you know, that it's really important for, uh, right, for people to understand that just because a rabbi wears a black hat doesn't mean that you lose respect for him, let's say, for example. And so you're gonna gosh darn it wear your black hat in a community that has a very negative perception about black hats <laughs> because you want it right, or you might say right or not, right? And of course, you know, one could imagine communities in which it was the reverse as well. Right, so you have to figure that out, right? What, you know, what things are worth fighting about. And for this commentator, it's not worth fighting about that people will lose respect for Moshe Rabbeinu if, as, if best I can figure out if they see him as the chef for somebody else's meal. Uh, now, we could, I can say no, right? You know, what, this is Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu's opportunity to tell people that you know, that cooking for others is a marvelous mitzvah and it's a chesed and, right, you know, and in any case, right, why should you lose anything, you know, respect because you serve as opposed to being served? If anything, it's the other way around because, right, you're being more ethical and you're not using somebody else as a means. There are all sorts of ways which we could do that, but I, and I don't disagree. I just find the Minchas Yudah doesn't read it that way. He, does, I don't, he doesn't see it as a loss in Moshe's humility for Moshe to be conscious about such things. And you can decide that because you don't share his perception that this is something that Moshe, right, that, that, that a genuinely humble person could do. So you can decide that that's not the reading you want, you want to offer. Um, you know, and there are lots of other reasons, right, not to like this reading. Because as, you know, some of you are, uh, you know, say like, do we really, you know, does Moshe Rabbeinu make, you know, take these, why would, why would Moshe Rabbeinu just ask God? Uh, right, why does he take it upon himself to make a decree? And, He's making a decree and imposing it on our right. All that's you know, really troublesome. Not arguing with you at all. Not, not arguing at all in the slightest about that. Right. Okay. I want to. Okay. I want to read the. I want to read the Medrash and one other thing before it, I take more questions. Otherwise, we'll never get there. Uh, these are great questions. It's my fault for um, for taking too too meaty stuff. If you know what, I will. I will make a command decision. So we're not going to read the Medrash inside. I'll just tell you that uh, you can look at yourself as an incredible thing. The Medrash uh, draws an incredible analogy. Uh, its issue is, remember we talked about how it says, it says that, that Aaron and Moshe have to uh, stay seven days twice. And the second time it talks about Mishneret Hashem. Uh, so the Medrash has this amazing idea that uh, connection that before the flood comes, uh, right, the, the flood occurs on the seventh day. So God waits seven days before bringing the flood. And the Medrash says that that's because God was engaging in mourning in advance for the world. Human beings, human beings can only uh, human beings can only mourn um, when once the bad thing has happened, but God can mourn in advance because He knows that it will happen. And then the Midrash says that the Shemrut Mishmeret Hashem here is connecting the seven days of Miluim, and I think the repetition of the seven days of Miluim to say that to some extent the seven days of Miluim were preparation, and to some extent the death of Nadav and Avihu was inevitable. And God set up the ritual so that Aaron and Moshe would, so that Aaron and, and, um, and his sons would mourn in advance. And that might be explaining why Aaron is silent at the end because he's really, what he realizes is he's been mourning all week. Uh, I think that's, that, right, you know, completely undoes the, the, the normal expectation, right, when Adav and Aviv comes as a surprise, explains where, right, what, right, I think they're trying to solve the problem of why God says, why Moshe says to Aaron, this is what God said. Where did God say it? So you have a foreshadowing here. 
So I'm going to put that uh, just we've done that in two minutes, and that's another point we can explore that just incredibly fascinating, uh, incredibly fascinating introduction what it says about the whole story. But uh, for this week, I want to I want to go back to our uh, to our theme. Okay, so let's pick it up in Periktet. So here we are on the eighth day, and Moshe calls Aaron, and he and he tells them what to do. And here we have a drum roll. Everything is. Uh, uh, well, let's take it. The first thing is, right, so Moshe tells them what to do. What is Vayichu? Eight asher tziva Moshe. El Pnei Olamoid. Eight asher tziva Moshe. Eight asher tziva Hashem, right? That's really problematic. Right? Uh, right. And for the rest of it, right, Moshe, then Moshe goes and says, right, Zedavar asher tziva Hashem ta'asu. Right? Then Aaron does it, kasher tziva Hashem. And that's the end of Perik Tet. But then in Perik Yud, um, when it comes to eating the Eating it, Moshe comes along and says, suveti, right? As I have been commanded, there's a little odd again, he doesn't say it's Hashem, and then it goes back to Kasher Hashem. So it's really odd to try and figure out right, why we keep going back to Moshe's involvement in this story. Why don't we just say it over, right? Kasher Hashem, right? We have a Sher Moshe, we have Kichain Suveti, really, really, um, right, really, really odd. Okay, then we have this interesting, right? So this is what happens, right? So what are the instructions that, Hashem, that Moshe gives Aaron? He says, bring the korbanot, kasher Hashem. Then he says, eat the mincha, kichain suveti, because I was commanded that you should eat the mincha. Right there again, remember, right, that whenever it comes to eat, right, to the eating instructions, somehow Moshe, they have odd languages. And then he says, and the, the chazeh and the shok, you should eat them too, uh, with your sons with you. And then, Right, and then the shok and the chazes should be waved. Kasher Hashem. Okay, okay, that's right. So we know Moshe is giving instructions: eat the mincha, wave and eat the chazes and the shok. Fine. Then we have this wild episode: the and the seir for a chatat. Now we don't know which seir, which chatat. Right, it turns out, um, right, the way Chazal read it, there are at least three chatats, seir chatats going on here. Um, that's going to be an issue. There are there is the regular seir chatat for Rosh Chodesh. There is a seir for being an asi, and there is a seir for the miluim. So we'll have to figure out which seir we're talking about. Derosh derash Moshe. So Moshe launches an investigation. Right, derosh derash. Whatever odd phrase. Bine saraf and look, behold, it is burnt. Right, that's really right. Why did Moshe just say, just ask Aaron? Right, what's like? It sounds like there's this inquisition going on. Right, derosh derash. Right. Emphatically, Moshe emphatically investigated, and it turns out he off. Nobody tells him that, right? Moshe just engages in investigation, and he discovers, oh my goodness, it was burnt. And he gets frustrated, angry with with Elazar and Itamar, right? The remaining sons of Aaron, not at Aaron himself, but at the right, and the remaining sons of Aaron. Right? That's a that's a, a loaded phrase, right? When, you're getting, when, you, when, right, when the two, two sons have just died and now Moshe gets, expresses anger at the remaining two sons of Aaron. And he says to them, Why didn't you eat the chatat? You're supposed to eat the chatat. Um, right, he has a whole explanation. Right? You know, it hasn't been, right? So nothing has happened, which we're going to translate as nothing happened to make the korban invalid. You're supposed to eat this. As I was commanded. This is a long-winded, uh, right? We 
could say it. Now this is a tirade. You got you got it completely wrong. How could you not have eaten it? And it's all burnt. It's all too late now. Everything's every, everything's messed up. It's spread. You imagine that Elzar and Tamar are terrified because we know what happened to Nadav and Avihu when they right, when they introduced fire where it shouldn't be, and now they've are apparently responsible for burning something that they should have eaten. Everything's gone wrong. And now Aaron speaks to Moshe, and he says, "You know what? Um, now I have to read it again. The um, the uh, the way Chazal read it. Aaron says, I did all the avoda.'" There's a lot, right? And and right, and would it would it really have been right for me to eat chatat today? To eat a chatat today when I was mourning? Hayitav ben Hashem. It's Aaron phrases an interrogative to Moshe. Right? If I had eaten this chatat that we're discussing now, um, right, would that be good in God's eyes? Right, so uh, and Moshe, Vayishma Moshe, and Moshe hears Vayitav beinav, and Moshe likes what Aaron has to say. And so disaster doesn't happen. Elazar and Tamar don't get burnt up by fire from God. But what kind of conversation is this? Moshe loses his right. And what is Aaron saying, right? It seems like, if we're reading the text in order, that Moshe says, eat the mincha. And then Moshe says, wave and eat the chazeh and the shok. And then, then Moshe starts investigating what happened to the sa'ir. And it turns out, if we're reading the text in order, that they had already burnt the sa'ir. So Moshe can't tell them to eat it, and he just loses his temper. Right? How could you not have eaten? How could you not have saved it to eat it? And then Aaron says, "Hang on a sec, but my son has died. Do you really think I should eat a chatat? But well, why not? You're reading the right. You're reading the mincha. You're reading the chazan the shok. Why shouldn't you eat the chatat? No idea what Aaron's argument is. And then Moshe's response is, Moshe, And Moshe says, "Oh, you're good. My bad." This is just an astounding narrative. Uh, astounding, astounding narrative. And I want to read it. I want to read it to you um, the way that the Rishonim and Achronim um, and Chazal read it, and then put it back into our um, into our question. So Rabag has a, an amazing reading, which again I think is pro- you know is probably going to uh, going to um, to not make some of us happy. Uh, Rabag says that the purpose of this, right? Rabag's commentary. Is written. Uh, there's there's this basic commentary, and then he has what the the toalo, toalo, the morals of the story, right? The the things which you should learn from the story, and he says we learn from the story is how separated Moshe was from the right from the world, where he reached this level, and that's the, the only level he could reach this level. Only right, this is the way in which he became separate, uh, separate from right, separate from other human beings, right? That he's he's unique among the prophets in his separation from the world. And here's what he says. He's so separate from the world that he makes a mistake in getting angry at Elazar of Itamar. Even though, right, the source of the laws he's talking about is in the Torah that he got from God, but because he wasn't used to engaging with other human beings, to the point, he couldn't speak to other people in appropriate fashion. And that's what he thinks means in Shemot. Uh, so even though we see that Moshe really cares about people keeping the Torah, and therefore, right, because he cares a great deal about people keeping the Torah, therefore, 
שיש בו נציאה ממצוות השם יתעלף, he got angry immediately at what seemed to him to be a divergence from God's commandments, ולא נמנע מזה מפני מה שחל עליהם מזה המקרה הרע, אשר מייסו בנדב אביהו, and he had no concern for their emotional condition that their, their brothers had just died. He said to them, כאילו אמר יאמר, שאין להם מזה הצד ההתנצלות בזה, you have no, you have no, um, no excuse. You have to follow God's commandments, no matter what, no matter how distracted you are. This is an amazing thing. Now, the way that Rabag reads this, Moshe, what, what Moshe got wrong was he didn't understand why the Chatat had been burnt. And then, right, you can read the Gemara and Zvachim, Adaf Kafalaf, and read various versions. Aaron, and Aaron gives Moshe a halachic explanation, and he says, no, there actually was a good reason that we did it. And Moshe says, oh, okay. So Rabag is willing, right? Rabag, Rabag reads the story that Moshe doesn't make a halachic error, but in, or, the, in order to avoid Moshe making a halachic error, he allows Moshe to make an emotional error. I think that's a quite astounding um, reading, but now I want to introduce you to the Orachayim's reading, which I think is in some ways uh, even, uh, even more radical. Okay, he says the Rosh Tarash Moshe, right? What does it mean that Moshe investigated? Right, what does what what are the facts to investigate? Why didn't he just ask? Omerani. So here's what the Rosh says: Ki Moshe lo hechlit b'atol ba'achila. Moshe wasn't sure whether this chatat should be eaten or not. Veraya, imashal lo amar lehem dino. Right. The proof of this is that Moshe told them to eat the mincha. He told them to eat the chazer and the shok, but he didn't tell them to eat the chatat. If was obvious to Moshe that, right, that they should eat the, that they should eat this chatat he should have said, "Hey, take the chatat, eat it." Okay, so right, you'll tell me, right? Maybe it was obvious since they said eat the mincha. So if you eat the mincha, you should eat the chatat also. Well, the rov So Moshe didn't have to say it because, after all, anybody can figure out you're supposed to eat the chatat. Right, so then what are we talking about? Right, Drosh, Drosh, right? What's Moshe investigating? It's obvious. Right, why is he thinking about it? Ella, right, so therefore the Rechaim says what Moshe said to them certainly was he told them, eat the mincha, because right, he has his rationales that the mincha is a one time korban, and so therefore, you know, you know regular korbanot don't get eaten when you're in Onin, when you're right, when you, when you're, you're, you have a relative that died that you have an obligation to bury, but. Um, but this mincha is different, right? That he knew that was obvious, and from there he got to the other regular things. But th- here we're talking about this era of Rosh Chodesh. It's a regular korban, which will be brought in every Rosh Chodesh thereafter. Of course, you know, there it's the first korban of its time, but it's it is part of a permanent system. And then a dying hadavaro made a slobus to fake, so Moshe is not sure about it. What should I do? So Moshe. The, right, so the way we have it is Moshe, Moshe it tells them, eat the mincha, and then he tells them, eat the chazan the shok, and then he's thinking about, oh my goodness, right, tell them to eat the chatat, and by the time he gets around to telling them the answer, oh my goodness, it's already burnt. Okay, right, he was thinking about, right, right, he was thinking about what to do about it, and then he gets upset, midatam, 
So Moshe gets upset at Aaron because they acted without asking him when he was still making up his mind. Okay. But then the end it says, Moshe says to them, eat it as I was commanded. Um, what that means is, you know what? I don't really understand how you reached the conclusion that you should burn it instead of eating it, even if you're just thinking, right? Even if you're just thinking about what to uh, about what to do, you should, right? You should. Um, have, the, the rational conclusion was to eat it, not to burn it. Okay, um, right. So that's the that's the um, that's the or that's the uh, the the He says, look, I know that the medrash says. That Moshe is asking, why did you burn it, the Rosh Darash? But that doesn't make any sense because it says it says that Moshe engages in the Drisha before he finds out that it's burnt. So it can't be about what can't be a question of why was it burnt because he doesn't know it's burnt until he asks. Okay, so Orachayim is, is really engaging in this radical claim that Moshe Rabbeinu has halachic questions which are resolvable by interpretation, and so he freezes for a moment to think about it, and then Aaron. And his sons go ahead and, says, and they say, well, Moshe didn't tell us to eat it. He told us to eat the others. So why don't we, right? So we should burn it. And then Aaron tells Moshe what he thought. And Moshe says, okay. So what's not clear to me, though, is was Aaron right? Was Moshe right? Does Moshe just say, well, it happened already? It's a good svara. So since I can't prove my point, I'll go with yours. It was halacha up in the air. It's an astonishing, an astonishing uh, orachayim on its own. But the most radical reading, which I think is in the standard reading among Rishonim, it's, uh, I've given you outliers. I think the standard reading is the most radical one. Here's what the Tosas Harash says. Tosas Harash says, he quotes a Gemara. The Gemara in Zvachim says, uh, we'll go back to the text. Zvachim says that um, this Kasher Tziviti, right, Kasher Tziviti, right, because as, as I was, when Moshe tells, um, when Moshe told, as part of his getting angry at Aaron, he says, Kasher Tzuveti, the, um, sorry, when, right, when Kasher Tzuveti, so the, um, so the, the, um, the Gemara, the Gemara in, in Zvachim quotes a Brayta, which says, Kasher Tzuveti, ani omer. God told me this, I'm not telling it on my own. So everybody's trying to figure out, like, why does Moshe at this point have to emphasize, as I was commanded, as, uh, and I'm not saying this on my own, when does Moshe ever say anything on his own? And why doesn't he just say, Kasher Hashem, as God commanded? Why does he put it about himself, as I was commanded? So the Tosafarosh, and again, this is the standard position among Rishonim, says the following. I'm not saying this on my own. Kilomar, don't mean, don't say, right, it means this is, Al-Tiyusurim, when Moshe says, I didn't say this on my own, he says to Aaron, don't you think, Aaron's son, don't you think, don't, right, don't, don't think that I'm making the same mistake that I made last time. Because this time, I definitely got it right, and I'm not saying it on my own. Now, this is a rush point. Out, hang on a second. This is a very weird thing. If you look at the psukim, um, right? So, what happens? So, kasher, kasher, um, right? Is it the tichin suveti? My fault, right? It's actually related to the, um, sorry, to, uh, it relates to the, 
it's a kasher tziv Hashem, my fault. It's not about the kichin tziv it's kasher tziv Hashem. Right? So Tzad Rosh says that this kasher tziv Hashem, sorry, my fault, this kasher tziv Hashem in the middle, uh, which occurs before Moshe, the whole dialogue of the Chattah, right? This is when Moshe is giving the instructions. So he tells them, okay, eat the mincha, and then he tells them, eat and wave the shok and the chazeh, kasher tziv Hashem. So the, um, right, so the Gemara asks, why does Moshe have to put it in as God commanded here? So the Tzadzarosh says, as God commanded here, this one I'm right about, I was wrong about this. And he says, look, I know that this is out of order. Right? I know that it appears from the story that Moshe first says, Ka'asher Tziva Hashem, about, the, about eating the other things. And then he gets upset about this Ir Chatat. But that doesn't make any sense to him at all. Um, because right, if Moshe is already giving instructions, as we pointed out already, he should have given instructions about everything. So it must be, he says, that even though the story about the about Moshe getting angry uh, occurs after Moshe gives the instructions about eating the other things in the text, in real life, really, really what happens first is that Moshe gets angry, and then Aaron corrects him. And Aaron corrects him the way that the most Rishon understand it are not the way the Orachayim um, understood it that, Mo, that there was a, Moshe made a factual error, but actually that Moshe made a halachic error. Right? Moshe thought that God had um, that God had said that Aaron was supposed to eat the right this chatat of Rosh Chodesh, even though he was an onim, and Aaron says to Moshe, "Nope, that's wrong. I am sure that God wouldn't want me to do that." And Moshe says, "Yeah." You're right. And then Moshe says, okay, but so, right, so you're right, you shouldn't have eaten that chatat. You did right to burn it. But I'm telling you, you really do have to eat this shokin chazeh. And Aaron looks at him and says, hang on a sec, but last time, right, if, right, if you had told me to eat the chatat, I would have followed you and I would have been wrong. So why should I follow you now? And Moshe says, kasher tzivashem. This time, Right, this time it's really what God, uh, it's really what God intended. Um, the um, Gemara points out, right, that Moshe, right, that, because that Moshe admitted, because that Moshe admitted last time, right, Moshe hears Aaron's words and he agrees. And, right, so Moshe, there's no doubt that Moshe made a mistake. And nonetheless, he says to Aaron, and this time you can rely on me. So what I wanted to, um, I wanted to leave with, I guess, and then I'll take I'll take all your questions. Was that what we've seen is that there's a whole array of um, there's a whole array of commentaries who understand this story as being about Moshe Rabbeinu getting things. Moshe Rabbeinu is, that it's not the Torah is dictation, but the halacha was not dictation. Right? Even after Moshe Rabbeinu gets the Torah, right when Real life Shilas come up, he has to answer the Shilas not by uh, right, not by revelation. He has to answer the Shilas, it seems, unless he directly goes back and asks God, which he does a couple of times. It seems he has to interpret it. And sometimes the interpretation is right, and sometimes the interpretation is wrong. And then after it's wrong, all of a sudden, um, right? So now what is Aaron supposed to do? And in Aaron knew Moshe was wrong last time. Now we have to be careful, right? We don't know. Aaron didn't go against Moshe's psak because he never asked the Shiloh, right? Aaron, Aaron went ahead and did his thing and Moshe gets angry. We don't know what Aaron would have done if Moshe had paskin for him in advance. And maybe the issue was really ambiguous, right? The way the Orachayim suggests. 
But the way that the Tosa Russian, most Rishonim learn it, really based on the Gemara, is that Moshe made a mistake. And then at, right after he missed the mistake, he says, right, he goes back to commanding Aaron and saying, this is what God commanded. And Aaron says, hang on a sec, but you go wrong. The last child I asked you got wrong and God knows what would have happened if I had followed, right? If I had asked you the Shiloh and followed you, maybe I would have no sons left. And Moshe says, this time is Kasher Tzivashem. So the best I can do um, is that what gives Moshe the credibility is Dafka, his willing is Dafka, his willingness to admit error. And his and part of admitting error is saying to Aaron, You're right. That wasn't explicit. I thought I knew what it meant, but now that you've told me what you think it is, hmm, you're right. I got it wrong. And so now when Moshe tells Aaron that um, this time you can trust me, uh, right? Because this time it's not interpretation. This time, right? This time, this is exactly what God told me. So Aaron knows that Moshe is being transparent with him. And that gives him the credibility. But the credibility is not based on a claim or an assumption of infallibility, um, right? It's based right now, Aaron and his sons, let's assume, relate to Moshe, you know, the way that, um, right, Marty asked Marty asked the question earlier, right? You know, how do I know that Moshe? But this time, Aaron just knew it was wrong. How could God possibly want me to do this when right when I'm an Onain? Um, or right, we thought this far was obvious, and that what happens here is that uh, it's the admit right that if you claim infallibility and you're infallible, great. But nobody. But it turns out that nobody's infallible when they're thinking, even if Moshe is just a conduit for God's word when he's saying Torah, but when he's telling people what to do, he thinks. And so why should Aaron, why should Aaron trust Moshe when Moshe would have been wrong? And the answer to that is because Moshe admits his mistakes. I think that's the, uh, the best I can do. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.